coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. And a happy Labor Day to you. I am taking a bit of a day off, so I'm going to punt just a little bit and give you some uh, prior conversations I've had in recent weeks. I'm going to start with my good friend, one of my best friends, actually, and a brand spanking new American citizen. Take a listen to this conversation from, how long ago was this? Like two weeks ago? Yeah, here we go. From Wednesday, August 23rd. One of my loyal listeners is actually just one of my really good friends, and He's also, by the way, now an American citizen. So I wanted to bring my friend Ludwig on. Ludwig, congratulations. How does it feel to now be an American citizen? Thank you so much. Uh, actually, it feels great. It feels like I close a chapter, and I don't have to be afraid of any change of government or law anymore. So it feels, <laughs> it feels amazing. Did you think we were going to throw you on the other side of the wall and make you climb over it or something? At least I was waiting for the ice police to knock on my door once or twice. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I feels really good. Well, that's good, man. So how long did this process take for you from deciding you wanted to be an American citizen to applying to... T- tell us the process. Right. Um, it's from when I was 22 years old and I'm 40. So it's been very, very long. Actually, once I even thought it was never going to be possible to become a resident, so... I decided to move to Panama from the Dominican Republic, where I'm originally in, and now finally did it. So the whole residency to citizenship was six years, but the residency progress could have been 10 or 12 years. Wow. Why did you want to come to the United States from the Dominican Republic? I wanted to come to a place where people still care. And, uh, you know, I know we are in divided climate, but we still care. We still talk about it. Also, a place where whoever I want to be and whoever I want to do in my personal life does not interfere with my hopes and my right to be a person. So I, I always admired Barack Obama, which is truth. And Barack Obama has a lot to do with me becoming an American and loving the Stars Blank Banner. Okay, so that does go back to 2009, which now is 14 years ago. So I guess that that sort of tracks. What's funny is like Ludwig and I are really close friends, but I have I'm asking him questions that I've never had the chance to ask him before because we've never had this conversation. Like why you wanted to come here. So when <laughs> when this process began, uh, listen, everybody that I meet amongst your inner circle who's from the Dominican Republic are friendly and engaging, loving people, accepting. Is the Dominican Republic itself not like that, or was it not like that when this journey began for you? It is. It is uh, for foreigners. We are an islander, so we are. We learn to be that friendly. But however, we are friendly people. We are party people. But that's yeah, not enough. Um, it, it is a lack of. It is a lack of many things, but one thing is lack of is um, liberty and understanding people who are not in social norms. Dominican Republic is a very Catholic-governed country mm. with with uh, laws and and not a very nice attitude towards you know professionals and people who come from different social backgrounds. Um, it's a third world country, and there's corruption and a lot of things that gets moved into it. Uh-huh. So. It was not my place at all. I was depressed and not happy there. 
What I love is that Ludwig tells me all this stuff after he's convinced me to travel to the Dominican Republic in November <laughs> for his wedding. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a touristic point. Oh, so yeah. I'll be there. He's just going to stay you in know. the resort. <laughs> you know, you just have to say, hey, he's single and has a green card. Believe me, everybody will be happy to have you there. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's hilarious. Uh, so your situation is vastly, I think, different than what we see from folks who are coming up to our southern border, a lot of whom are seeking asylum and running from not just the oppression that you speak of, but from actual violence and even the, the climate issues now are, are, are a thing. Uh, so does, does that give you a little bit of a sense of empathy when it comes to their plight and having gone through the process as you have for now more than a dozen years, you say? Actually, it gives me more love for them because I know how it feels, even that. I might have some advantages. Like I did have a legal way to come here since my families are Americans. Mm -hmm. And I I did a doctorate in HST University in Arizona. So I had education that could open my doors right away. But I exactly know how it feels when people refer to you like you are a second class or an animal. So I, I, I feel more empowered, more love to them. The first thing I did... The first thing I did when I got my citizenship process was uh, register to vote because that's all I can do right now. Because honestly, it just makes me sad when I see how uh, people use us. People use a lot immigrants for their own benefits. And mm-hmm. you see immigrants saying, talking, and repeating things that sometimes makes no sense, but that's all they know. So no, it makes me love them even more. Huh. That's uh, fascinating. I, I have this dialogue all the time with folks who are conservatives that talk about our immigration situation, wholly unaware that their side of the political spectrum has really gummed up the works and made this such a tedious process and not even negotiating in Congress to do anything about the crunch of immigration. Um uh, but so remember they do not negotiate to do nothing they negotiate to do things against people who are just looking for their human rights to be respected um looking for a refuge coming from countries where there's a war zone is a human right it was signed in the 60s -hmm. we had our first lady last name uh, roosevelt eleanor who who we sent and signed that right so it's not a discussion if it's a right or not but till today us as a country who led human rights uh movement we are still uh, not finding our way to respect them Look at you talking like an American citizen already about us. <laughs> no, that's good. Already. That's good. Already. Yeah, no, get used to it. That's uh, that's that's fantastic. Well, listen, I've been paying too many taxes to be quiet. <laughs> uh, now you're starting to sound like a conservative. We're going to have you here too long. Anyway, listen, uh, I know you're heading to the passport office to go get your uh, your new U.S.-based passport yes. so that you too can go to your own wedding in the Dominican Republic in November. You better get on that. All right, man. I'm so happy to see you there. And thank you so much for giving the opportunity to be in the long radio show that I really follow and love. Cool. I appreciate it. All right. Good luck today. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. So when we come back, we're going to talk, or you're going to hear me, having spoken with my good friend, David Alexander. David Alexander is a co-founder and president of American Haircuts, a local upscale men's barber chain here in Metro Atlanta. He's also a friend of mine since college and a pretty accomplished actor as well. In fact, he is a SAG-AFTRA member and I brought him on the show because I wanted to get some insights from somebody that I knew, 
somebody who was also a business owner who could talk on both sides of the labor v. management dispute about the actors and writers strike. Pretty interesting stuff. We'll get to our conversation with David Alexander from earlier in August when The Ron Show returns on America One Radio. Welcome back to The Ron Show. Happy Labor Day to you. I am enjoying a day off. Enjoying, well, only 90 degree weather. I mean, we were dealing with triple digits a lot of July and August, so today's kind of refreshing, right? Since it is a holiday for me as well, I thought I'd share some prior conversations. Uh, one that I had with co-founder and president of local upscale barber chain, American Haircuts. He's also a sag after member and a pretty accomplished actor, if I do say so myself. His name is David Alexander. Back on August 7th, we discussed the actors and writers strike. Take a listen. I am really kind of thrilled to have my good friend, David Alexander, joins us. And he's one of those guys, and I've been telling him he needs to do a podcast with this sort of premise. He's one of those guys you've seen in a lot of stuff on television and in cinema. I've known him since Athens, Georgia. He used to cut my hair. I used to have hair. Uh, and uh, we used to work together at a bar. I, I don't. We were door guys, right? Because I wasn't really a bouncer. I never really had the bouncer build. I like the bouncer term. Yeah, I know it sounds cool, but uh, I mean... I, but back then, I was bald. Yeah. And had the goatee and all yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, you did have that that, yeah. that look about you. He he also is uh, one of the managing partners. What What is your official title with American Haircuts? Uh, co-founder and president. Well, there you go. I like that. Yeah, co-founder and president at American Haircuts. And we started that uh, almost 20 years ago with mm-hmm. the guy that owned the bar that you and I worked in. Greg yeah, so, good stuff. Yeah. yeah. I just helped him buy a house here a couple of months ago, I think nice. it has been. I brought you in because you are a SAG after member. Yep, yep. And with... The SAG after strike, now the writer strike before it, Hollywood and Atlanta Hollywood has kind of come to a grinding halt. Uh, that affects a, a lot of folks. Yeah. Naturally, the writers, of course, and the actors. But give us a little idea of like the ripple effect, the other sort of jobs that are affected by these strikes right now. Oh, there are just hundreds of people uh, in Atlanta right now that are out of work because of this. Uh, so I feel, you know, terrible for the people on crew, the hairstylists, makeup artists, directors, camera people, uh, electricians, uh, grips, mm. catering. Uh, I mean, there are just hundreds of people that work on film sets. Uh, I know my agent is uh, they're currently just kind of doing a lot of non-union stuff. So they're they're hurting too. casting directors. So it is a huge ripple effect, not to mention all the businesses that provide goods and services to the film industry. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's massive. Are you aware just how, when you talk about all those jobs, are you aware like how many of those, how many people are impacted just in a general sense, like a, a just a round number? Uh, yeah, it would be hard to put an exact figure on that, but in Georgia, thousands upon thousands. Wow. And as a real estate agent, I happen to think that it's going to have effect, if it doesn't already, on the housing market. Because from a housing standpoint, you have people who are, here and have been here long term uh, working in the industry who now are impacted economically and not sure they're going to be able to stay here even and may put their house on the market. We've had a a shortage of housing uh, in Metro Atlanta over the years, but also the rental income owner who owns an Airbnb, a lot of people, you know, short-term rent out condos and townhomes and homes throughout Metro Atlanta, and they're going to be impacted by this too. Well, yeah, and I feel bad for the people who are a crew because like actors, you know, we don't work a lot throughout the year. I think last year I worked about six different jobs and, and did pretty well for that. But most actors and writers have jobs that 
support us through the lean times when we're, when we're not acting. But because a lot of people on crews go from set to set to set, they're mm-hmm. working a lot more consistently when the, we are. So a lot of those folks don't have side hustles. jobs and side yeah. hustles they can rely on. So, right. so it's tough, and I'm hoping that the whole thing ends quickly. What are you hearing about that? It's not going to end quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's not even a discussion going on right now, right? Isn't there some sort no. of like pause in the communication? Well, the uh, the WGA, which is the Writers uh, Guild, and uh, the AMPTP decided to meet last Friday to have a meeting to talk about having their meetings, uh, oh. talk about resuming talks, and that fell apart. So talks are now currently off, and they're saying that it's on hold probably indefinitely. So we could see this drag off. Uh, until 2024, unfortunately. Do you know what the general sense is with the public as far as like who they support? You know, the public tends to be, I believe, on our side uh-huh. uh, because they see the corporate greed that goes on to where you've got Tim Cook from Apple raking in billions of dollars and Bob Iger from Disney raking in billions of dollars and making more money per day mm-hmm. than most actors see in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And we're the ones, writers and actors and crew, are the ones creating the content that they're getting wealthy off of. Mm-hmm. And and people see that with, with Amazon and other huge companies like that. And I think the public is getting a little tired of such a huge wage disparity between those at the top and those who are actually doing the work, creating the products and the goods. So I think by and large, they, they are on our side. But now there are also a lot of people that think, uh, you know, I had a, a friend on Facebook comment uh, after we went on strike, something to the effect of, oh, well, it's just more Hollywood elite trying to get richer and squeeze more right. money. And I was, you know, so I posted something to, to kind of break down and be very transparent about what actors make. And I took an example of a job that I worked and broke down the exact figures. But before I did that, I had people guess how much I made for my uh, work on the episode of, of television. People mm-hmm. guessed like $18,000 and $8,000. Oh you know, some $500, you know, it's, it's all over the place. But a lot yeah. of people think that we're way more uh, well-paid than we are. Right. Uh, and the reality is we're not. There's, you know, you got your Matt Damons and, and your Meryl Streeps and all those people at the very top that are in the 0.02% of, yep. of actors. But most of us, to break it down... Um, to qualify for SAG after health insurance, you have to make just a little over $26,000 a year as an actor. Okay. Uh, 87% of people in our union don't qualify for health insurance. Wow. So there's not a lot of rich people in, in, in entertainment. And most of us don't become actors or, or artists because we're looking to get rich. Uh, mm-hmm. It'd be nice. Mm-hmm. I'd love to live that lifestyle for a, for a while and see how, it's, how it is. But most of us do it for the love of the craft, and, and we like to tell stories and create art, and that's why we do it. But it's not unreasonable to think that at some point, because entertainment and art is such a huge part of our society mm-hmm. um, and our, our culture, that it's not unrealistic, I think, for artists to to be able to expect to at least make a decent living mm-hmm. doing what we do. Uh, you know, we don't need to be Bob Iger, but we would like to be able to pay the mortgage and 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 have a pay the car and and take the family on vacation to Florida once a year. Right. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's yeah. it's not that we're asking for a lot. So one of the reasons I thought you were someone that would be worth talking to is for for a couple of reasons. Well, you are also a business owner, as we pointed out, for American Haircuts. Uh, you have also worked, as I did, in the radio industry. Yeah. And I watched this all taking place with the writers and the actors, and I keep thinking, 
you know what? If the radio industry had ever had this kind of reckoning, yeah. radio might still be relevant in society because <laughs> you, as you talked about, making a living, being able to take the family on vacation, that's not a thing in radio broadcasting anymore, by and large. Yeah, I, yeah, I was in radio for about 10 years and uh, and got out of it because I was tired of having roommates and, and making, yeah. you know, like, yeah. God, I can't remember what the last my last salary in radio was, but it was probably like eight bucks an hour or something mm-hmm. ridiculous like that. And uh, it, yeah, it's it's hard to make a living in that. And it, yeah, I think radio would be better off if they had uni- unionized. Uh, I mean, actors and, and writers and other artists aren't really well off, but because of the strength of the union... Uh, we have fought for over the past several decades uh, better wages and better working conditions and mm-hmm. all that, which you know radio hasn't uh, hasn't really done at all. And, and again, the, the 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 industry is is a shrinking, dying industry without much in the way of local staffing anymore. I mean, even in Atlanta, we have two pop stations, uh, one of which has a syndicated morning show based out of Atlanta, but it's not really part of the station. Yeah. And then they syndicate a lot of the rest of the day. And the other pop station doesn't have a local morning show at all. They repurpose something out of Seattle from the day before or the show before and then have a couple of local talents and then a lot of stringers just kind of going out there hustling and hitting the streets. That is not what a radio station like we came up to yeah. listen to or even initially worked in was like. Uh, you know, I, I get the itch every now and then to get back into it. And I, I guess it was about 10 years ago I went and did a, a like an on-air trial for a, one of the big pop stations uh-huh. here in town. And literally, I was sitting in a, in, a, in a room with a computer yeah, doing all the mixing and playing all the commercials and telling me kind of what to say and when to say it. Yeah. Like, well, if I want to just sit in, in a room and listen to music for four hours <laughs> and make nothing, you yeah. know, I can do that and just at stay home. at home. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, yeah, there, a lot of the creativity and, and, and spontaneity and, and stuff that I used to love about radio is completely gone. Well, they want you to blog and social media your tail off and, you know, to attract an audience back to their product without necessarily paying you for drawing in all that audience. Yeah. You know, also as a business owner, I, I just thought it would be interesting to hear from somebody who kind of understands both sides of the coin when it comes to the argument about. Uh, labor and wages versus ownership. Yeah, we also see headlines where uh, you know Netflix uh, companies like Netflix uh, they'll they'll report uh, report earnings losses sometimes or find themselves raising fees. I mean, my Netflix got to be so expensive it was almost like having cable. I was like, I just, yeah. I just cut it off. For those who are on the outside looking in, how much more money is there, and can it be done without the consumer having to pay additional fees if you guys? you know, get what you're looking for. Well, and here's a lot of the problem now with the streaming services like Netflix and Hulu and Apple TV plus is that they don't release any numbers. So it's very mm. hard to tell how much money's there, how many mm. people are even watching the services, mm. which is one of the big things where the SAG after is fighting with, uh, with, yeah, there's uh, no rating service. Is there? Yeah. There's no rating service. So nobody really knows if these people are profitable or not, but I will say as a business owner, I, I'm responsible for my employees, and mm-hmm. I'm responsible to make sure that they make a good living so they can provide for their families and they can stay with us. Well, it's good for your business. Yeah. And if, like, Bob Iger from Disney, I keep bringing him up because he, <laughs> he said that he thought that our strike was disturbing. I bet it is. If if <laughs> I own a business, before I pour mouth about not being able to pay my employees more, I pay myself less. Yeah. And, and I think there's a lot of stuff that could be done within the industry if it's not profitable that would allow them to be more profitable. 
and also pay their people well, especially the ones that are creating content. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think we need CEOs making, you know, $400 million a year. I don't yeah. think we need some A-list actors making $75,000 for a picture. Mm-hmm. Granted, they do get a lot of eyeballs to the product and, and to come to the theater. You know, wait, wait, wait. Years. You meant $75 million a picture, right? Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. All right, just, just making sure, because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, if Matt Damon's going to do a $75,000 flick, I've got a script for him. Come on yeah. down. <laughs> yeah. So I think maybe work for a little bit less. Yeah. And, and I can't say anything negative about Matt Damon, because they have a, a new production company they've started that produced the film Air. And the concept that they've got with their production company is that everybody works, and depending on how profitable the, the project is, everybody also shares in that. Nice. Which is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think... That's the way to do it. And hopefully the industry is moving toward more models like mm-hmm. like that. That production company, by the way, is called Artists' Equity, and it is, in essence, a cooperative. Friend of the show, Professor Mal Hyman at Coker University is a sociologist, and he brings that up in conversation with me all the time. What role do cooperatives have in American capitalism? Can't wait to have him on the show at some point in time to dive into that. Anyway, we've got to take a quick break. More Best of the Ron Show for this Labor Day Monday coming up in just a few minutes. Thank you for listening on the America One Radio app. And you can always get more of these conversations at ronshowatl.com on the blog archives. Welcome back to the Ron Show and happy Labor Day to you. I'm taking the day off, so I'm enjoying some past conversations with you and hopefully you are as well from the last month or so. It was about a month or so actually that the Montgomery brawl happened. So I wanted to speak to someone from the NAACP in the state of Alabama to get some reaction and a general temperature, a checkup of sorts on civil rights inside that state. Wonderful conversation with Bernard Simulton. Have a listen. Take the Ron Show wherever you go. Download the America One radio app to your smartphone and listen on the go. Or in traffic wishing you were on the go. The Ron Show on America One radio. I'm happy I get to speak with Bernard Simulton. He, am I saying your name right, by the way? Uh, I say Simulton. It's what you say. No, it's not what I... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bernard Simulton is the uh, president of the Alabama chapter of the NAACP. Do I have that right? The state conference, the Alabama state conference, is that right? Right, the uh, Alabama state conference. Well, uh, what's going on in Alabama these days? Is there anything to discuss? I'm just... <laughs> well, where, where do you want me to start? Well... Start with redistricting? You want to start with... Oh, my gosh, with, uh, yeah, we Tub- could... Tubbaville, or you want to start with the incident oh, and... In Burma, uh, Montgomery this weekend. What do you say? You what do you say if the two of us pull up a couple of folding chairs and actually use them to sit down and have a discussion? <laughs> uh, so obviously, the thing that everybody is talking about is the Montgomery incident, and so by now we know the identity of the dock wa- uh, dock worker. Uh, this this poor guy almost had to single handedly take on uh, a batch of men who were trying to insist that they had the right to park their pontoon and uh, where, you know, where they did. And so we have uh, the identities of uh, Richard Roberts, no relation to me, by the way, uh, Alan Todd and Zachary Shipman, who uh, all decided they were going to gang up on this dock worker. And uh, Damien, I Damien, Damien uh, Pickett's his name. And, uh, you know, bless him for all he had to put up with. But, what what do we know beyond that? Uh, obviously, this has sparked you know some conversations about uh, race. Uh, I, I pointed out yesterday it's it's interesting that a lot of the the right wing pundits that love to pounce on situations like this, if the perpetrators were of color, are pretty silent on this. Mm-hmm. What what would you like to add? Well, you know, uh, 
we heard through a <clears throat> kind of a second party uh, a young lady that uh, talked directly to one of our members, and um, she has said that, and I won't call her name at this point, but uh, she has said that uh, uh, there were racial slurs that oh, were sure. being, and I was surprised the police chief today did not mention that, and uh, because that would help to indicate that there are potential hate crimes there. Mm. And so, and of course, I know they're not finished with the investigation yet. And uh, so that's, you know, still to look at more video and, and, and talk to more people to find out if in fact that was. And uh, like say the person that uh, I heard through uh, one of our other members that talked directly to the person said, yes, there were uh, racial slurs that were uh, being hurled uh, in, in addition to the fingers and hand sign gestures and all that. Mm. There were racial slurs that were um, uh, being hurled throughout the uh, conversations or if you call them conversation. <laughs> and uh, but, you know, if you look at the uh, dock worker, he, this gentleman was trying to do his job. He was trying to uh, get the boat's clearance a space so it could dock you know and you know from what i understand you know they were on the boat for over 40 minutes trying to dock and oh you know yeah. that that in itself uh you know i don't know what charges but there seemed to be uh able to possibly make some additional charges there for you know delaying or causing delay unnecessary delay of people being able to get to their next appointment and stuff like that for sure yeah and and and, and so uh, I, I think there will be more charges uh, mm. brought, and uh, the NACP is certainly monitoring this situation. Uh, you know, we're not, we're certainly calling for everyone to remain calm and uh, let at least initially the authorities do their investigation. And then, you know, we will speak out whether they have done what they should have done. Uh, but we are certainly uh, very concerned about the image that has been uh, portrayed right. there by the, the acts of these individuals. And because uh, Alabama is already on a national spotlight uh, because of what uh, Senator Tuberville is doing, as well as the redistricting case. Mm. And this adds to all of that, showing really who Alabama is and that the, a lot of the... Uh, 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 racism that exists still exists mm -hmm. today, and it has not uh, not you know been dealt with adequately, and so we're we're very concerned about this. So, uh, in in full uh, transparency, full disclosure, I lived in Mobile, Alabama, for about a year and a half uh, through my radio uh, career before you know eventually brought me here to Atlanta. But, uh, you know, I have some fond memories of living in Alabama and worked with some fantastic people. I, you know, I call her Mama Karen because she was our mama. She was the receptionist that worked at the front desk. Mama Karen mm -hmm. took real good care of us. And so, you know, staying in touch with Mama Karen has been, you know, uh, you know top, top of mind for me ever since uh, I, I lived there. Uh, but when you speak of issues of race, I keep going back to the Senate election where Doug Jones won that Senate seat in, in what was, I guess, in some sense, a surprise but considering the <laughs> the opponent he had to take on with the allegations of sexual misconduct with minors and this that and the and his overt racism in and of itself, 
I really thought that maybe Alabama had turned a corner because we saw the demography turn out in a statewide election with what do they call it? They call it the, 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 the rural black belt that, you know, kind of traverses from Alabama through Mississippi. If we're with Bernard Simonton with the Alabama NAACP, by the way, are the numbers there to challenge a Senator Tuberville uh, or, or take, take on a, a statewide office? Yeah. How close is Alabama to turning purple like Georgia is? I guess is the question I have. Well, Alabama is certainly a long way from turning purple. Right. But and, you know what we have said, you got you have to start now, you know, planting those seeds because if you just say, well, you know, Alabama is red and it's it will never turn, you know, purple or blue, mm-hmm. then it never will. But you got to start planting those seeds. I think there are a lot of good people in Alabama who get caught up into and I'm just going to put it out there some of the trumpism mm-hmm. and and they cannot turn away from that you know you, you look at our attorney general you know uh that some of the things that uh they made about <clears throat> the state of Alabama you know losing you know the particular Republican party and the NACP is nonpartisan, but they talk about the Republican party losing some of its power if this redistricting case does not go their way. So they know that there are people in the state who want to change, and if that momentum began to swing as it did with Doug Jones, if we can maintain that over a you know couple elections then the state will become more, you know, uh, uh, more level minded mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, and we'll see things much different. And so that's what we, the NACP and other civil rights organizations are working towards. And, uh, we will continue to work towards that goal, you know, because we believe that there are enough people in Alabama that can make this change. If, you know, we can get to them and uh, get them away from some of this Trumpism that they are, are being fed every day. Can I just say, and, and I'm, I'm not disagreeing with what you say when you say that the NAACP is a nonpartisan organization. I understand that it is. But I also think that it would be a privilege if the NAACP actually just could be a nonpartisan organization and not have to weigh in on issues like, uh, you know, uh, redrawing maps. Unfortunately, only one party is egregious in their efforts to curtail uh, participation in elections for people of color. And it's not, it's not team blue. (laughs) Well, it's, uh, I I think if you look at what the NACP has stood for over the years, Mm -hmm. we have been successful and being nonpartisan, mm-hmm. and and I know there are a lot of people say, well, you know, if you were partisan, uh, you could get a lot more accomplished. Perhaps we could, but you know, we we think we've been successful because of our uh, ability to speak specifically on the issues without putting a a party or a partisan slant to it mm-hmm. you know speak on the issues you know we talk about you know uh blacks needing to have more political power more economic power mm-hmm. and that's an issue that's not a it's not partisan it's not uh, a racist policy it's a policy that needs to 
take place because of the past discrimination that has occurred mm -hmm. against people of color. And so, uh, you know, we don't uh, uh, make any qualms about how we feel about that. You know, we we know that, and it's again, it, it's done in a nonpartisan way. It's it's because of uh, past discrimination. We are on with Bernard Simulton, the uh, state chapter president of the NAACP. Uh, so, where are we now with the congressional redrawing situation? Uh, we under like there's there's one of seven that uh, are are are, uh, are serving in the Democratic Party from the state of Alabama. There's bound to be a second liberal or, you know, progressive, you know, minded uh, congressperson to come out of that state if these maps were fairly drawn. And and for the record, the, the state's been told to draw a more fair map and they're resisting. What's the late, what's, what's, what's set to happen? Well, not only are they resisting, they flat out refuse to abide yeah. by the order of the federal district court in Alabama, as well as the Supreme Court of the United States. Mm -hmm. The maps that they drew they do not meet the requirements stipulated in the uh, court ruling. Mm -hmm. And so if a organization or if someone refuses to abide by a court order, then what is supposed to happen? You know, there's supposed to be additional legal action taken against that entity or that person or the, in this case, this state. Mm -hmm. And that's what we are pushing for. We go to court on Monday and they will hear oral arguments as to why you know, well alabama would present its argument as to why they think their map meet the intent of the uh, supreme court and the uh voting rights act of 1965 mm -hmm. and then we're going to present our arguments as to why it does not only not meet the requirements of section two of the voting rights act but also did not meet the requirement and what they were told to do by the supreme court mm -hmm. you know and of course, Alabama has a history of that. If you're talking about everything from <laughs> yeah. integration of schools to uh, 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 integration of University of yeah, Alabama, yeah. You know, where they refuse to do mm -hmm. to follow those uh, uh, laws and rules, and so it's it's par for the course for Alabama to uh, not do what they're required to do. Now, I think the real reason that Alabama is not they want to get it back. Get somehow get this case back into the courts. Maybe not this specific case, but get a redistricting case back into the uh, courts at the Supreme Court level and see if they can't um, held the Supreme Court rule that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is null and void, just like you know they were able to do in the Shelby versus Holder case mm. where they were able to uh, get the Supreme Court to rule that uh, Section 4B was invalid because the, you know, uh, things have changed since, uh, you know, 65 and that the reason that the Supreme Court ruled that states had to uh, uh, had to, had to uh, include enough uh, uh, African-Americans to actually do a proper election those things no longer exist uh, because they're saying that states are more fair now than they were back then. I but mean, but come on. <laughs> we know that uh, racism still exists in voting, and I think this is a, a prime example as to why <clears throat> the Supreme Court needs to pass a John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Extension Act. Absolutely, or yes. Well, and, and this goes back to my, my premise that, you know, it, it would be a privilege 
I, I say this about fiscal conservatism too. Like that's a privilege to be a fiscal conservative. I would love to be a fiscal conservative if, if you know, if, if the chips were were falling in an, in, a, in a modicum of uh, uh, equilibrium. And I think it would be a privilege for uh, a civil rights activist to say, "Well, I'm nonpartisan," but clearly you're having to fight one party vastly more than the other when it comes to equality, unfortunately. Um, So that's where we are. I agree with you. That's where we are. But, you know, we're not going to give up. And uh, we believe that justice is on our side and we believe that right is on our side. Mm. And we're going to continue to fight this battle, you know, until our life breath, because we know that we are on the side of right. Well, before we uh, we stand up and I take that folding chair from you, because I'm not going to turn my back on No, I'm I'm kidding. (laughs) I I wanted to uh, ask you, I know you are a graduate of uh, uh, Mississippi Valley, but you live in Alabama. And and again, having lived in Alabama, there's a lot of intense pressure when you move into Alabama to choose a side in the Iron Bowl. Did you have to choose a side or did you feel the need to or... No, no, I good, good. I, Stand your ground, man. You're a Mississippi Valley man. I, I'm a Georgia man. That's what I, I I tell everybody. I'm uh, Mississippi Valley. I don't care who win uh, Auburn or Alabama, right. and uh, whichever one wins, that's fine with me. Good for them. Uh, I'm strictly uh, a MVSU fan yeah, and uh, support them all I can. But do you smile a little when Georgia beats Alabama in big games? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to go on the record for that because I don't want to get you in trouble. Anyway, Bernard Simonton with the Alabama NAACP. Thanks for joining me on The Ron Show today. I appreciate the time. All right. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. All right. Welcome back to The Ron Show. Labor Day Monday, and I'm taking a little bit of an afternoon off. But before I did so, I decided to pull a few conversations. And the final one today from a rural Northeast Georgia minister who caught the Washington Post attention by growing his congregation in a less than, shall we say, orthodox, Protestant sort of way. Spoiler alert. He's inclusive. Final segment for The Ron Show. It was over the weekend. The Washington Post shared a story Allison Miller wrote chronicling the Mount Hebron Baptist Church and its pastor, Grant Meyerholtz's philosophy to fill the pews by not leaving anyone out. As a Baptist pastor, Grant does the unusual. He gave a convocation at a Hartwell Pride Festival gathering in April. He has a congregation with members of color. He has the LGBTQ plus in his rural church as well. And to hear him tell it, that's exactly what Jesus wanted a church to look like. But I just don't think that when Jesus came here that he said, you know what we need? We need great big churches in every town. (laughs) You know, I, I just don't think that's what he came here for. I think he said, you know what we need? We need for the church to not be in a permanent location. It needs to be on the move. It needs Mm. to be mobile. It Mm. needs to be at Walmart. It needs to be changing tires. It needs to be hugging necks. Mm -hmm. It needs to be loving people who may not look like you, think like you, talk like you, or even worship like you. Mm -hmm. You know, I I just had a discussion with a friend of mine and he he doesn't believe in God. And I, I don't, I mean, and that's him, you know, we're still, we're still buddies, been buddies for years. Right. The problem is, is to me, is this, if you want to worship something, you know, and, and it's not in a compound with a bunch of AR-15s, mm-hmm. but, you know, if you want to worship something and it betters you and it betters the community around you, then you should have the right to do that without anybody saying nothing to you. And unfortunately, Christians, well, not uh, Christians, because Christians are different than a lot of church people. Mm -hmm. Church will tell you, well, 
you know, you're a woman, so you can't be a deacon or, or you're a man. Well, you've been uh, divorced. You can't be a pastor. You can't be a deacon, you know, or you're this. You can't be this. We tell people that there is an all loving God that accepts you just as you are. <laughs> but yep. if you've been divorced, yep. you know, and I don't know how hard it is to be a deacon. But, you know, I say that with sarcasm. It's not if you can carry a metal plate, collect some dollars and set it back down on the table. You are qualified. You, you know, you welcome, brother. Yeah. You know, but like our church, you know, we're one of the, we're not the first church, but definitely in in our like area, you know, we now have a female deacon. You know, we have a a young man who is, uh, uh, I, you know, he's. Uh, he's black mm. and he got a hundred percent of the vote to, to be a deacon at our church. Nice. So Mount Hebron is a little different, but yeah. you know, and, and we're not, you know, unfortunately, you know, all the problems in the world are solved in barber shops. But the problem is, is, you know, we just don't, <sighs> unless if the house of cards fall, you know, you know, churches take up money they send a portion of it up line somewhere we don't really know where it goes but you know i know this you know most of the churches around here are broke and our denominations are not mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When, it, when it moves on up the line and pastors are generally decent people because they get into the ministry because something changed in their life and they want to affect change in somebody else's. And then what ends up happening is they go and they learn all this stuff from whatever Bible college they go to. And really they're not learning a lot about the Bible. They're just learning how to govern under that denominational rule. Right. And then they become job scared because, you know, they don't want to say nothing wrong and get fired. Yep. And me and my ministry, you know, fire, I could care less. You know, if you don't like me, I don't really care. You know, I want you to like me. I wish you would. But, you know, if I get fired because I let, uh, I let a, uh, a black kid come to church, or, you know, or, uh, you know, people of another faith comes to the church or I go do a marriage for, the Baptist guy that wants to marry the Catholic girl, which is a problem around here. Sometimes <laughs> I've heard, you know, or I got in deep water because I did a wedding for an interracial couple, which i never understood because again, if you are a Christian, then you have to believe we came from three brothers that right. got off the ark. Right. So I'm like an interracial couple. Really? She's marrying an alien. Cool. <laughs> you know, from Mars, this is great. So be my first one. I, if I get fired because of that, I don't, I don't really care because I don't stand in front of them when it's all said and done. And one of these days, I'm going to look at that guy that I love more than anything. And I hope he looks back at me and, and I hope he doesn't say, you know, wow, man, without your big church, <laughs> we wouldn't have been anywhere. <laughs> you know, I don't think he's going to say that to me. You know, I think he's going to look at me and, and I sure hope he does. And he's going to say, you know, you did what I asked. You love the least of these. You love those that couldn't find it in them to love themselves. Sometimes you spoke for people that couldn't speak for themselves. You stood for people that were afraid to stand. I was in jail and you visited me. I was 
I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. That's where I hang my hat. And that's how I'm going to go to my grave. Can't think of a better way to punctuate the conversation. Grant Meyer holds lead pastor at Mount Hebron Baptist Church in Hartwell, Georgia. Thanks for giving me some time. I appreciate you for being on the Ron Show. Hey, thanks for having me, man. All right, that's going to do it for the Labor Day Best of. Thank you for indulging me enough to let me do that today. I will put some SoundCloud links so you can listen to all those interviews. Uh, in today's show notes, yeah, I'll do a show blog for this at ronshowatl.com. And of course, we'll be back here tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com or wherever you podcast.